Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I, I can't even believe I'm looking at two people here sitting across from me. Uh, do you guys want to introduce yourself, or should I should I have the honor? Yeah. Well, so uh, the first, uh, who you, you've all heard many, many times, I was recently, I was walking down the street at the farmer's market, as one does. Someone stopped me, and they said, are you Nick Bilton? And I said, yeah, and they said, I love Emily Jane Fox. She's amazing on your show. So that is who that is here mom. today. That was your mom. She was here. And then we have the one and only Lee Eisenberg, who has a unbelievable movie that is out this week uh, that I saw last night and cried laughing. It was unbelievable. Hi, Lee. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. So we, we're going to get to a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about uh, Lee's movie, uh, Lee's time, uh, The Office, uh, new show he has coming out on, on uh, how do you say it? Apple? I think Apple is the way you pronounce it. Oh, just Apple. There you go. Lee's very funny, by the way. Uh, and we're going to okay. talk about Epstein. We're going to talk about Trump. We're going to talk about the whole sh- the whole kit and caboodle. So I'm going to start this off with a question for you, Lee. Who do you think killed Epstein? Was it the Clintons or Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for this one. <laughs> I mean, it could. Look, look, the guy knew everyone, right? Yeah. And uh, he had secrets on everyone. And... It, you know, the news came out this week that his neck was broken in multiple places. Here's the part. I'm not one for conspiracy theories, although I did I, do a show I, on I'm it. I'm going to beg to differ on I, I'm not You are for... the ultimate conspiracy But here's theorist. my conspiracy on this one. He's six feet tall, right? He hangs himself with a bed sheet from the second bu- bunk of, yeah. the, of the thing. So he had to get down on his knees to do it. So I can understand, like, you know, asphyxiation, you can't breathe, all those things. But breaking your neck, like, doesn't your neck break when you kind of, like, fall from a... Does, do you see what I'm saying? No. So, You're saying that he's too tall to have he's fallen He's too from tall to have, to have lunged himself well, forward his on his, to- his knees. His proportions, his bodily proportions. Well, they like, said he had to get on his knees. Torso. Okay. Well, uh, so what do you guys think? Okay. Okay, you want to take this? I would like Emily to take this. Okay, so here... <laughs> I'll chime in. I had different thoughts until I saw that Washington Post report about his the, the breaks in his neck being consistent with someone strangling him. Mm-hmm. And, and you're in on this conspiracy, right? It's not a conspiracy. Okay, what is it? So, I, until today, I had just a strong inkling that he... Paid for okay. Let's just let's just stop and say I think something was exchanged in order for these guards to have let him go. I don't think they're just. I don't think they were just like sleepy guards on duty. I agree completely. I think that that something was exchanged in order to let the guards let him be for three hours. There's obviously a question of whether that means the money was or whatever it was was exchanged from Epstein to let him kill himself or from other people to kill Epstein. And until I saw that report, I thought, this is just Epstein wanting to die. I would want to die if I were Epstein. This mm. is this man had no possibility of getting out of 
prison and having a life. The, the Although, stuff that was detailed about him was horrific. horrible. Yeah, and it just an endless. Sure. And they and they had everything. So I thought, you know, it seems to make sense to me that he would have wanted to commit suicide. But, but seeing the way his neck was broken feels a little fishy to me. And but, also, yeah. Well, the thing I'm confused about is that there was an attempted suicide, right? Like a few well, weeks before. Wait, wait, wait. Have you, if you, if you obviously do not read the Daily Mail website. <laughs> Nick Bilton, little known fact about Nick Bilton. <laughs> Nick Bilton is like news. truly no. 90% of the traffic on the Daily Mail. No, no. My sister is. She's obsessed. But um, it's funny. I, if I like write a big breaking news story that gets picked up by other outlets, my sister will see it in the Daily Mail. <laughs> she won't She won't actually read it. She'll just look at the photos and send it to me and be like, did you see this? Lee's sister loves the Daily Mail, too. Big fan. Mm-hmm. Big fan. So anyway, they said that there is a theory floating around that uh, the, 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 the roommate um, he had, the cellmate, uh, may have strangled him. Uh, sure. And, and that he didn't actually try to do it before. So we don't really know. Here's what I'll say about that, though. Mm. I was in court the last time Epstein was in court, and the judge gave them the space to say... Anything that was bothering them wrong on their minds. And the lawyer said nothing. This was days after the either suicide attempt or roommate attacking him. If they were worried about his safety in that cell and if someone was attacking him, I'm sure they would have been worried about his safety yeah, in that cell. I agree. They would have said something at that point, and they didn't. Well, here's the thing that, you know, and we don't have to harp on this too long, but I, I've covered trials at, the, at the, um, the courts over there, and it is what's so fascinating about that jail is is it's smack dab in the middle of downtown. I literally live two blocks from there. It, My, you, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 there is this like labyrinth of of security and tunnels, and they put the nine eleven guys in there, and like you know, just El Chapo and Madoff, Madoff and Ross Ulbricht, and like all these people who have means and money and power and so on and so forth, and um, and the the jail. From what I had always heard from people who I know that work for the DA that are right there, was like a pretty a pretty tight ship. So the part that I don't understand is like you've got the most notorious prisoner probably in the world at this point. At, you know, as far as yeah, absolutely, um, as far as the media attention and so on, and you just put a like a temp guard on him and you remove his cellmate and things like that. That's the part that doesn't it make is sense. It's so fishy and. Bizarre. And if that's the way our prisons, if if nothing fishy happened and that's the way our prison system's running, that should be concerning to everybody. And this this is uh, why when the budget comes down and they're cutting money to federal prisons, it's a problem. But it just seems to me like this is this is your star witness to uh, and star defendant. This is the, the case of, of probably the century, definitely the decade. So wait, you're gonna so, let him go? So what happens now? So you've got uh, you've got Andrew, Prince Andrew, you've got Clinton, you've got Dershowitz. Dershowitz, Woody Allen, I Jill mean what's that? Jillen. Uh huh. You have even Donald. You have there's probably a long list of people we don't know about. Do they just get away with it? Like I don't how? think so. I think the SDNY put out a statement on Saturday after Epstein died. What I thought was really, well, I know that the prosecutors and people in SDNY were in the office like first thing Saturday morning. They were on this and they were very upset that this happened. 
And they put out a statement in the afternoon saying, we're going to get to the bottom of this, and also made a very clear point of saying that one of the counts that he was charged with was conspiracy. Mm. And that, to me, signaled they're not letting other people off the hook here. You have the possibility of the, the whatever the criminal case is going forward. And what's interesting is now, because Epstein's dead, he can't contest any of the evidence that was seized from him. Mm-hmm. So... That's that's a good thing for that's the case. That's a good thing, yeah. But also, uh, you have civil cases. So you saw yesterday, I think one of the victims sued his estate for money. So it'll proceed both in the criminal and the civil track. So so I have a question. So we have been witness to. Um, I I was looking through some some of the new books coming out uh, in the, in the spring. And you read. I read I read a lot actually. Believe he looks it. at the lists. <laughs> That's where he. It's more of a list reader than I, a book I reader. I read about them on the Daily Mail website and um, amazing reviews, lots of pictures. And I was so I was reading about this, uh, all the books coming out. And there's, there's the She Said book. There's the Ronan Farrow book. There's all these books on the Me Too movement. And I had this kind of moment where I was like, holy shit! Like this thing, you you you're you're always looking at the ten foot view. Like when you take the ten thousand foot view. Of what this what this movement has done, it's astounding, and yet Donald fucking Trump has gotten away with it. Do you think that that even like the Epstein stuff or anything is going to actually touch him? I have my I have some advice to give to people mm-hmm. in twenty twenty. Mm. I told this to Lee in real time. Uh, <laughs> but here's here's my thought about what should happen now if you're someone who's running for 2020 if you're running a campaign if you're someone who's planning on who's a pack who's going to advertise use this moment right now the anger and upset and disappointment of not seeing epstein go to trial was so palpable i felt it last yeah, weekend completely. it felt to me in a way i mean much worse but the same kind of feeling as when kavanaugh was going on mm-hmm. and what i think is is a helpful message would be to say Kavanaugh is on the Supreme Court. Epstein's dead won't stand trial. Trump is in the Oval Office, despite the fact he's been credibly accused of sexual assault by more than a dozen women. He's caught on tape saying he was going to grab women by their genitals. This is not what we stand for. The rich and powerful men in this country should not be able to get away with things because they're rich and powerful men. This is not America. This is Russia. And if we want to change the course of the direction of the country, we have to stop letting these people get away with things because they have the means and because they know people and because they know their way but around they, the system. But, but and a let's lot of take people, back our country. A lot of people have been stopped except for Donald Trump. It's, you know, look at the long list. It's sure, like, but if you tap into the anger about the people who haven't been stopped. Got it. The Kavanaugh's, the Trump's, the Epstein's. W- women are going to be crucial to this election. Women yeah. are... Uh, they played a huge role in the midterm elections, and that was spurred in part by the uh, emotional response to the Kavanaugh hearings. And so if you keep tapping into that exact same emotional place, I think that's a very smart way to, to go about it. So the other question I have is is behind the scenes, everyone is talking about um, all the people Epstein was associated with. And when you look at all of these stories – uh, um, when you look at the Weinstein stories and you, just all of them, there is one person who is always tied to it. There's two people. There's Trump usually, and then there's Bill Clinton, right? And it, do you think that at some point that 
Bill Clinton is going to get wrapped up in something much worse than the Monica Lewinsky scandal that just hasn't hasn't reached fruition yet? Drum roll. Some people are very good at and have developed systems over decades for covering their tracks. Got it. That's the your question is hmm. how good were those systems at all times and we are now in a point where we are re-examining things like ha- what happened to Monica, uh, things like Epstein and this plea deal he got. And so are there other people who were in the orbit of someone like a Bill Clinton who was okay with the conduct that they were a part of at the time but have now re-examined it, and are they going to come forward? Lee, what do you think? You know, the Clinton thing is really interesting. I mean, I read that... Uh, one of the one of the victims claimed that he was on the island on Epstein's island. Yeah, Clinton claims he never was. He went to the townhouse once, right? And he went and he was he flew on the plane a few times. And people like Bill Clinton like private planes. I'm told. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, and and you know, he has a Secret Service detail on the whole thing, and they say everyone's his flights are logged, but it doesn't seem impossible or improbable to me that he. What I think is so fascinating is when you kind of look at all the stories about Epstein, like there was the incredible piece in the Times this week by James Stewart, where he had actually said that he went to Epstein's house and interviewed him on background. And since he's dead, he can tell the story. What do you think about that? I've t- I, if I tell someone something off the record and, and I get hit by a bus, please use it for whatever you want. I feel the opposite. Oh, completely. Come how on. Is that a gr- but how you, how is dead. that agreement null and void it's if you're, you're dead. dead? So? So what? doesn't matter. You made you're the dead. agreement when you're alive. Well, then you should have a sec. There should be like there's on background, off the record, and then off the record when I'm dead. Like that you should, okay. if it's that important, then say it. If not, it, it's not. You, I, feel like, I feel like it's a tricky question. But I think that maybe we we should re- develop a new thing where where you where people in the event ha- of keep, an untimely jail yeah. suicide. <laughs> here's what you. It's like you have a donor card, so everyone knows when they interview you. They, <laughs> they on your pull, license. Yeah, it's on your yeah. license. <laughs> it's like, I have no scruples. Eye color, <laughs> yeah, blood height. type, height, and uh, if you can use things that were said off the record or on background, on level of intimacy, <laughs> level of intimacy. So what's so fascinating is he James Stewart tells the story of how. He goes there to interview uh, Epstein on background, um, uh, or was it off the record? Doesn't matter. Um, about What's the difference for someone who's not? I, I know the I know the answer, but just for people at home. So uh, for people at home who are just tuning in, uh, on, off the record is you can't really do anything with it. You could use it to like inform your reporting, and you could go and you know if you said to me, uh, Emily really likes white T-shirts. I couldn't say Emily really likes white t-shirt. I could go follow her around and see that she now wears white t-shirts every day and I could use that. Mm-hmm. As my I own could re- go and ask someone else in another interview like, hey, have you noticed Emily wearing a specific color of t-shirt a lot? Something like that. You can use it to inform other interviews, but you can never use it. On background means, you know, you can say according to a source close to the matter who could not be named because they were not allowed to say anything publicly or something like that. You could do or you could, you know, you could just write it and not attribute it or whatever. Off the record in the case that I am dead means you can never use it. Mm-hmm. So that is the new a new form we've come up with. Anyway, he talks about the story, Stuart, in the Times about how um, he went out there because he heard that Epstein was helping Elon Musk. And uh, 
And he, there's literally a photo of Epstein and what's her name again? How do you say it? Gillen. Gillen, uh, who was it's pronounced the way that it looks. Yeah, <laughs> that's the most confusing name. I literally ever. couldn't. I was like, <laughs> there's there's four H's in it. <laughs> who is apparently now hiding out in a? Uh, She's in uh, Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, in a multi. How far away is that from where you grew up? What's the town like? I've never been to Manchester by the Sea. Oh, I only know from the I only know from the movie. That movie was awful. <laughs> Awful. Yeah, it was like it was the most tragedy de- porn. Yeah, that was that was nothing. I think that was like one of the few movies I've ever walked out of the theater from. I was just like, this is not uplifting. I or- saw it with my dad, and it was a tough movie to see with your father. And I think the two of us looked at each other one time during the movie, and just like both started bawling. It was a very very sad day. It's a it is yes, it's an awful movie. And so, but she's hiding out in Boston, or I don't I think imagine. she's there. Okay, she's somewhere. And um, she's definitely hiding. We can agree on that. I feel like, well, she's in the, the jail FBI cell. knows where she is. Yeah, of course they do. Okay. Um, Who's his boyfriend? Who's the 43-year-old tech CEO? So, oh, yeah. And I meant to ask you about this yesterday, Nick. He's like a, I read about it in the Daily Mail, so come on. <laughs> Nick, I don't know. This feels weird this. now. This is really up I your caught, street. I caught, I caught Nick in a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's really funny is I actually read about it in the Daily Mail, too. <laughs> yeah, it was there. Wait, so. I don't go to the Daily Mail every day. <laughs> yeah, it's, here's, yeah, yeah, Here's what happens. We put the kids down. I'm so tired, I can't even stand up. I lay there, I go on Twitter, I hate myself. I go on Instagram, I hate myself. I go to the Daily Mail, I fucking hate myself. And then I like close it. So <laughs> And then you fall asleep. And then I go to sleep Are you hating okay? myself. No, it's these websites. It's like it's it's the point of the day where I'm so tired that I can't read a book and I can't write and I you know and I can't and and then you go and you go so through then the you whole. Just go straight to self loathing. No, you go through the process of like you know. Come on, everyone's done this. Do you want to watch something? Sure. You go to Apple. You go to Netflix. You go to Amazon. You go to NBC. You go to USA. You can't find anything Allow you agree on. Allow me to recommend you. Ah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, what the point that I was trying to get to was. Everyone who has been uh, tied to, in some way, Epstein has an excuse. So Bill Gates apparently uh, was on his private plane with him. Is that right? Um, or the mansion or something? He was at, I think a dinner. A dinner with house. him, and he, you know, came up with a wonderful excuse for why it happened. The best was Elon Musk, who was with and in a photo at the Vanity Fair Oscars party, and he said that they weren't talking. That she just happened. He was getting his photo. She was like a desperado, and she just happened to step behind him, and it's like. You know, I, I, sure. Okay. Don't these great. people have publicists? They do. This is what their publicists say. They they need better publicists, in my mm. personal opinion. But but there's all these people. The only person who's who isn't like, oh, I I don't know him. Who who's or like you know, it's Woody Allen, who's like, yeah, I fucking hung out with him. We had a great time together. You wow. know, that's <laughs> well, it. even his brother. Even his brother kind of pretends that they're not close. Yeah. yeah. They well, they owned all this there's, real estate together, and there was an unidentified individual who who picked up the body. I wonder if it was oh, the I know who would you think that is? I think it's probably Could you, no. She's not going. You think she's voluntarily walking into a morgue right now? Good point. She would be on the table next. Mm. Here, okay. So here's what I know about the alleged boyfriend. He denies that she is currently at his house. So the denial was very carefully worded to say not to say that she was never at that house. Mm. Uh, and and so he runs this like shipping company, cargo company or something, and then is also on the Council of Foreign Relations. So I reached out to the Council of Foreign Relations yesterday and I was like, does this guy still still work there? And they responded and said he's one of 5,000 members. He used to be on staff 
Um, and here were his two jobs that were on staff here, but he's still one of the members. And I said, well, are you planning on keeping him? And they were like, yeah, hmm. which I found very interesting. Very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Thoughts, Lee? The whole thing, I mean, the whole thing is... <laughs> All right. I, no, I mean, it's like it feels like it feels like this thing could un, unfold. The only way I think about anything is like how many how many seasons would it last? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like you have two or three. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, and I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. If you were to make a show about one part of this saga, what would be the most interesting to you creatively? Um, can I pitch it? Sure, you can. yeah, you can mm-hmm. start. I don't have an answer. We open up in a jail cell. In New York City, a man is there alone. The guards walk by, cut to him dead. We don't know what happened. Mm. And then you flash back to, you flash back to Dalton, 1978. He's (laughs) strutting down the halls, hitting hitting on on 17-year-olds. I I do think that... um, too old. uh, Yeah, that's way too old for him. I I do... No, I know, but I mean, well, the the weird thing at Dalton, there wasn't a lot of... There wasn't a lot of talk of that type of behavior. There was like a little bit of, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't yeah. a thing. You would think that a guy who's a who's a teacher there would. Maybe we just don't know about it. Maybe. I, I think that the thing that is so fascinating is that how intertwined it all is. You know, you talk about like joking around like the seasons of it. Like it's like. It is so. It is so incestuous on so many levels. Well, it's it's power. It's money. It's sex. It's, yeah. I mean, it's. Stop it, talking about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Enough about me. No, the uh, no. I think that it's really. It's so disturbing. It's also. Uh, it's power unchecked. I mean, it, it went on for thirty fucking years. I know, which is in, longer. I mean, thirty years yeah. that we know it's about. It's so but, New York. That's the thing. All these idiots live in New York and live in this very small orbit. Of this would town. never happen well, in Los Angeles. If people are debating New York, LA, this is the thing. Look, but, yeah. you have Woody Allen. You have uh, Donald Trump. Jeffrey Epstein, you have uh, Leon Michael Black. Wolf, Leon Black. Uh, it, it's just such a New York story in the worst well, it, possible way. It is a New York story, but what was interesting about the Jim Stewart piece in the Times is he said that Epstein had said to him um, that you know he was talking about the Silicon Valley folks and how they're you know they play like they're all nice, but they've got their own shit going on. I can't say I can't say names and things like that, but I've say heard it. some fucked up stories like about what? people like bizarre, like sex parties and dungeons and like and men who get together and shave their legs beforehand and like is that like, weird. It's a little weird when you do it together. If you do it alone, <laughs> you're totally fine. <laughs> I didn't know you're such a puritan. 
No, but there's some like like I, I you know there's one. Yeah, I think that the the the, the they, the psychology is these are guys who it's are... people who want power, it comes with it. Who didn't have the blossoming social experiences as, as young adults because they were into whatever they were into, and now they have money and power, and they don't know how to behave as normal social humans. Correct. And you just summed up Silicon Valley in a, in a nutshell. There you go. All right. I, so I want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, we're going to get to Donald. Uh, and him and his. But let's jump. Let's do Donald real quick, and then I want to talk about about Lee's movie. Let's do so, it. I feel like he's kind of losing his shit. Am I wrong? It's. It feels like it's like. Here's what I think's happening. So, and I've seen this in publishing. Like a lot of friends at different news outlets across the country have said that, and we've experienced it at Vanity Fair. Like in the beginning, there was this. Um, you put Trump in a headline, and it was like. 20, 50% more page. I mean, it was literally hundreds of thousands of page views sometimes. Now you put them in a headline and it like drops 20, 30%. It tanks. No one, people are completely burned out. And I feel like, I feel like he kind of gets that and he's trying to prod the beast to, to, to see if he can rile up the media even more. And I mean, what's astounding is that it's now three and a half years later and we're still having a conversation about him, even, even if it's tangential. He is the president. But I will say to our benefit, we didn't start the conversation about him, whereas three years ago, two years ago, we would have. But but I feel like he's trying to like he's trying to prod the beast, right? He's, and it's not working, and he's trying to go further and further and further. Do you think that he is, in as a result of that, going to alienate more people or just keep his base exactly as it is? I don't is? think that that's going to alienate more people. Here's, here are the interesting things that I've heard over the last three days. Okay, let's do it. I heard he is losing his fucking mind about polling. That all he is concerned about is polling. And there are people, including his wife, who are blocking and tackling anyone they think is going to present him with a negative poll. But so he had negative polls before we went into 2016. He, they will not allow him to see a negative poll because he will lose his fucking mind. So that is the the people around him are just trying to block any kind of negative poll from coming in. But I look at polls now like I look at unicorns. It's like, oh, okay. You well, so, are not, but in many ways, and in this specific ways, are not like President Trump. He sees a negative poll about himself and is losing his mind right now. I understand that polls are meaningless right now, but this is they are meaningful to our president at this current juncture. Okay, cool. What else so have you heard? he's losing his fucking mind. Okay. Great. Uh, so I've, he's tweeting in response to that, right? He's like... Well, if he's, if he's what happens is, is if someone presents him with bad news, he goes crazy, and that's why you see him doing crazy You know what shit. I thought was amazing? It was I actually don't follow him on Twitter anymore, but I, I did I've come... I've never followed him on Twitter. Oh, good for you. Do you mm-hmm. still follow him on Twitter, Lee? I don't have uh, a Twitter account. Oh. Well, He's a you are the human. healthiest human being in this room. I go on room. Twitter. I, I don't know how to tweet. You <laughs> I put are. out an Instagram last night. It was a real struggle. <laughs> I didn't know how to. I, I, like I, lo- I love how you say I put out an Instagram like it was a massive press release. Like there was a hundred people involved. It, it, there, honestly, there was a been, car of six. There was a car, yeah, there was a car full of people. And <laughs> I, I didn't know how to upload the picture. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. I'm very impressed. Yeah. You obviously don't self-loathe at night before you read the Daily Mail like I do. Everyone loathes in a different way. It's true. It's true. So uh, he 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 twitted, twatted, whatever you say, the other day that he accidentally watched uh, – who was it that he accidentally watched? Bill Maher. Bill, Bill Maher. And like – I mean, Bill Maher's response was pretty amazing. It's like, how do you accidentally watch my show? Totally. Um, but he's he I, he's like – 
accidentally watching CNN. He's accidentally watching MSNBC. Like, he's really in a in a state. Well, he's also on, he won't say it, but he is on vacation in Bedminster. There have been I think it's been very rainy on the East Coast. So also, Bachelor in Paradise is only on Mondays and Tuesdays. So you have well, to feel the rest of the week. What I was going to recommend week. to you was to watch Bachelor in Paradise. Okay, it's okay. truly. God's gift to Earth. It's Great. the greatest show on TV. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm not, we're not kidding. What is it actually about? What do you mean? Well, I don't know. It's about the human about condition. It. It's about power. It's about love. It's about sex. I just, I just want to say Lee is not peeing right now. <laughs> <laughs> He's pouring water into a cup. Now you're seeing how the sausage gets his made. His response to talking about, about Bachelor of Paradise is automatically <laughs> peeing in his pants. Wait, what, can, what is it about? No, it's, oh, wait. Do you know what The Bachelor is? I do know The Bachelor. That's okay. the one with the rose, right? This is like me talking Ugh. about Twitter. <laughs> okay. So so The Bachelor and The Bachelorette exist. They're also God's gifts to Earth. Bachelor in Paradise happens every summer where people who have been on past seasons of Bachelor and Bachelorette go to Paradise. Where is it? Uh, Sayulita, Mexico. Wow. You guys really do know your shit, huh? Nick, this is a way of life. And okay. if you're depriving yourself of all joy, yeah, if you don't watch the show. But, but, so what happens? They okay, go so to, they go. There are how many of them? Not you enough. Know, there's 15. N- there should be hundreds, so it's on all year round. So and let's do they say they fight? Like, what do they do? Oh, they fight. So the, the object of the thing is you want to get engaged by the end of Paradise. Mm. So there are an even number of men and women when you start. And then one week, the women get to give the men the rose, so the men are vying to couple up with one woman. And then the next week, the men are responsible for giving out the roses, so they're trying to find... Um, they're picking their women. So it's these are people are trying to couple up, but some people are trying to couple up with the same person. And so you have love triangles. And there's and tons of alcohol. They drink, they start drinking All real day. early. Wow. And they do not stop. Not a lot of clothes. It's not so, a lot of clothes. Sounds like my house at 6 a.m. with the kids. I, honestly, <laughs> your house could be the set of a junior spinoff. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a fight. There's a fight that started at the end of last episode that will be continued on Monday. And wow. it is... You guys are really into this, huh? Well, it's the best show on television. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Well, Speaking okay. of the best Speaking in entertainment. Speaking of the best of entertainment. Yeah. So I, I had a Great really... Segue. I had a really fun fun time last night. So you have a new movie out. I do. Uh, uh, it's coming out on Friday, August is, 16th. This comes out on Friday, so you really just so screw I just, that I one up. I fucked that one up. Yeah. Do you want to go pee in a bottle again or something? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you knew how to edit your show, then this would seem really seamless, but instead... This is. It's called uh, Bad Boys. No, Uh, it's not. It's called Good Boys. Good Boys. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? It's it's amazing. Uh, I got that right. No, it really is. So I went to see it last night uh, with you guys, and I couldn't actually hear all the dialogue because people were laughing from the second it started till the second it finished. It it really is an unbelievable movie. Uh, Here's my question for you. So so uh, Emily and I have to live in this vile world called Trump land and we have to kind of read the Daily Mail and do things like that every sure. night and like keep up with him and his his posse and the terrible vile things they do to like poor young children at the border and so on. And it's like sometimes it's pretty hard stuff and like cover mass shootings and, and you know. And you get to live in a world where you're... I write fart jokes for a You write fart you can, you jokes. Can, you don't have to... <laughs> dildo jokes. There's some dildo jokes. There's yeah. some lots of sex toy jokes. Um, do you... Is it like... What's it What's it like working on a film like that? Is it... What's it like to be me? Yeah. Is it fun? Do you, do you keep away from the stuff that we should keep away from? Do you... 
Does it incorporate? Do you think like, okay, I'm working on this because I want to give people an escape from that? Like, what's the what's the the, the I thought? Mean, I think I think everyone. I mean, you'd have to be a real shut in to not be aware of what's happening outside of. <laughs> yes. Outside of the movie set, um, I don't know. I don't know that my work is informed by that. I think that I I enjoy entertaining. I love writing. I love creating and it's really hard to come up with ideas for movies and TV shows. And so when something kind of, so tell us, tell us, tell the, tell the listeners, uh, the gist of this, of this movie and how you, I am curious about what you just said about coming up with this idea, because you'll tell us what the idea is in a second. And it's such a novel thing. It's Mm -hmm. a great idea. It is. I've never seen a movie that reinvents a, an already great concept in this way. And it's so delightful to see a movie concept that you haven't seen before. It's so rare. So I'm curious about the creative process. Yeah. Where does, so, t- so, give so, the, us- so the gist of the movie is it's super bad with 12 year olds. Essentially. That's like the fastest pitch of it. Um, and it's about three kids that are, um, they're trying to learn how to kiss cause they're going to their first kissing party and they, look up porn and they have all sorts of ways of trying and to f- you're actually in the porn scene <laughs> i mean you know <laughs> I, I try to make money anyway I, i'm a multi-hyphenate Wait, did you make money for that of course i made money i'm in sag <laughs> i'm a union guy keep going so they they look so, up porn yeah they look up porn they're yeah just they're trying to figure it out they none of them know how to kiss how old are they uh they're 12 12 okay but we They're actually tiny humans in well, we, cast, we cast down so the kids were the kids were 11 and 12 like a lot of times people age pe- kids up because then you can also use them for more hours and we actually went down. So the popular kid in the movie, Soren, I think is 10, mm. but we, he's playing 12 and the main kids are 11 and 12. Cool. But um, they spy on some neighborhood girls using their dad's drone. The drone breaks. So they need to get to the mall to get a new drone. The mall is four miles away. And when you're 12 years old, getting four miles is quite a feat. So, so where did this come from? Were you going to a kissing party and you didn't? I went to a kissing kiss? party, yeah, like a few years ago, and I was like, "Oh, this might be a fun movie." <laughs> um, and I was with a bunch of twelve-year-olds. No, the um, Kai Epstein. Wow, I, you walked ooh. right into it. Well, now we just talk. Now was, we're now we're was, connecting politics. That and, was too, that's why I'm here. And, yeah, news and no, that was, that's why I'm here. And good boys keep going. Bad boys. Ah, uh, bad boys. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, honestly, like the first thing we started talking about with the movie was. Uh, 12-year-old boys spying on girls in the neighborhood with a drone. And with a modern twist on it, essentially. Well, I guess the modern twist was with that the, the we didn't drone. have drones growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we were, we, we just started talking about that age, and we, you know, I think with comedy, it's really, I mean, I don't know. I, we don't know what we're doing. I mean, like, we're, we're only, What's, what? So, so let me ask you a question. So, so comedy, like, I literally, I'm not bullshitting when I say this. Like, I literally, that, that movie theater last night was laughing from the second it started till the second it finished. Every line Every was a joke line was a joke. How, it feels like you were just accusing me of something. How? No, it was unbelievable. I'm like, I, this was now, in, in, in full disclosure, it was the third time I've seen this movie. And I walked out of the theater, and my cheeks were hurting because I was laughing the entire time. I, no, I literally it was it was the most refreshing. It was kind of like um, I used to skydive, and when and um, trust me where I'm going with this. And it's like this 30 second moment where you jump out of an airplane. I used to do it a lot every weekend, and you jump out of the airplane, and it's this moment where you're like you don't think about anything else. And it was like for two hours I was in the movie that I didn't think about Trump, I didn't think about like anything, and it was amazing. But my question is, how? Is it hard to come up with those jokes every single line? Like, how do you know they're going to be funny? Uh, 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no, no, it's a, I, I do it's know a serious saying. question. Like, how do you know when you when you because so much of it is the delivery and the you know and and the juxtaposition and so on. And so, how do you know when you write a movie where or because you worked on The Office for mm-hmm. for how many years? Were you on five that? for five years. Um, how do you know that something is going to land as a joke? I mean, it takes a really long time. Like, it's not. I mean, I've worked with some of the biggest comedy writers and some of the funniest people like in the world. And there's no, I mean, there's people who have a facility to with it, but it's not, uh, it's not seamless. It feels seamless when you watch the movie, but it took years to come up with all of those scenes and then to edit it and find the right takes and, and the rhythms of it. Um, so, I mean, so when you're, when you're shooting some of the joke scenes, do you do them with, in, with, in different orientations and things like that. Oh, yeah. That I mean, we have, like, I mean, in a movie like that, we have alts. So those are alternate jokes. So on any given line, when a kid, you know, when a kid's on camera, we're like, okay, say it this way. Now say this line, say this line, say this line. And then you're, when you, you, you test the movie, and mm. I, I mean, I don't know why I'm funny, probably because I, like, wasn't popular growing up or something. And... We were talking about it the other. Gene and I were talking about it the other day. Gene's uh, your, your my your writing partner, my directing partner, directing partner, all my partners. Um, you know, I think that like I think that there. I think sometimes a lot of people that that get into comedy, it's like you're kind of like watching from the side, and you're a little bit of an outsider. And I think you become observant, and you you're just kind of like I don't know. It's like you're th- you're kind of like the kid in the back of the class who's not necessarily not. I don't I don't know a lot of comedy writers that are the like class clown. Um, but I think that they were, I think they were, they were not in the mainstream in some way or another. Um, and so, yeah, you kind of like you, I mean, you hone your skills and then you, you experiment. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. So there are a lot of things in the movie, and I want you to tell two stories off of this. Sure. There are a lot of things in the movie that are about sex toys and finding and using uh, one of the child's parents' sex toys. Yes, that <laughs> not for true sex. to you. So, go for so it. So for me, I was in. I think I was in third grade or fourth grade. Hmm. I was at my friend's house. We're no longer friends, not because of this, although this could have contributed. And he said, "Do you want to see something up in my parents' bedroom?" I said, "Sure." And we went up to the bedroom, and underneath the bed was like a shoebox. And it was like, there was a TV guide. You remember like the, t- the small TV guide? Yeah. It was yep. like that, but it was a porn. And it was called like Big Boobs or something. And it was like a woman who's like breasts touched the floor. And I just like, I couldn't, I like, I didn't even know that that existed. I was like, the logistics of it made no sense to me. 
um, it's also possible that the photo had been doctored. It's what? possible. And then he pulls out a vibrator. And I said, what's it? Well, I said, what is that? And he said, I don't know. It's for sex. And so then we proceeded. So we turned on the vibrator and we rubbed his mother's vibrator all over <laughs> our young bodies <laughs> trying to figure out how it's for sex. And then we were like, well, that makes no sense. And then we put it back in the drawer. <laughs> and and how, that was that. How many years later did you realize what that was? On the set of Good Boys, I found out what a vibrator was. <laughs> So, so yeah. when you think about when you're writing a movie like that, and something that happened to you when you were in third grade, in four, like, how does that that translate into something that well, you're going to put in a movie like that? To me, I is guess, an, no, a crazy thing. Well, here's the other part of that question: is is if I had that experience, I wouldn't wait till I'm working on a movie about it. Like I would have stuffed it into the office like five seasons ago. It'd have been like the first thing I would have done. Like, how do you hold it and at the same time? Well, I mean, like, I mean. Uh, Things have to be appropriate to the to the material. So, like, I don't know that the I don't know that that story. It's possible I told that story in the office writers' room, possibly because you spend hours and hours and hours, and I've heard every story of Mindy and BJ and Gene and Mike Schur and everyone. Like, you just hear about their lives, and you know those anecdotes. You know, a little piece of something then turns into a story. I don't know that like the. I think the vibrator story is obviously funny and was worthy of making it into Good Boys. I don't know how that would have like fit into the office. I don't know how that like fits into like a network show. Another thing that I I thought another story that I love about working on Good Boys is so you're you're making an R-rated comedy with tweens. You have welfare workers on set, obviously. Yes. Let's stay on the topic of sex toys because I'm sure your mother and my mother want to keep hearing us talk about sex toys. There was a funny story about what where they drew the line when it came yeah, so to Yeah, so I asked you, I think I I asked uh, one of the producers last night, I said, was there, like, I asked this very question. I said, how do you do these sex toy, because there's a lot of sex toy jokes, and they're the all. Movie also, the, movie, the movie has a message, Nick. Yes, it's not a, just. I wanna, we'll get to the message yeah, the next, message, but I actually think it's a really important message, message, but I want to hear this first. message is that children don't know what sex toys are. Um, no, there is a there is a very important message, which we're going to get to. We're talking about sex toys. It's way more important than the uh, than the message. So um, uh, I was curious. How do you how do, like how, how do you legislate that stuff? How do you say like it's little kids? Like you know the parents are there. Yeah, the parents are there the entire time. I mean the and there were some jokes that didn't make it in. What what were they? There was nothing that didn't make it in because of it being too inappropriate. Okay. The one issue that came up was we wanted to put. I mean, I can't, oh God, I have like a terrible person, but I, I thought it would be really funny to have, there's a scene where a kid, um, he pulls out his shoulder, he separates his shoulder and you need to bite down on something like, you know, in olden times it would be what, like a piece of wood or Belt. a piece Let's of leather. Strap. Yeah. A strap of some sort, but they don't have that. And they have this bag that they, they, they think the sex toys are weapons and they're going out in the world and they're terrified. So I was like, he should pull out a dildo. They should pull out a dildo and put it in his friend's mouth. Like a corn on the cob. Like not, like, not. Suggestive. Not yes. horizontally. No, yeah, horizontally. Yeah. Okay, okay. We, we get the point. You understand? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and he, bites down on, he bites down on the dildo as the kids try to pop his arm back into place. That was the thing that the welfare worker said no. Got they it. drew the line at a dildo. They drew the line at the dildo in the mouth. Was it like a big be, discussion or was there just it like. It was. We, it was a closed door thing. Oh, Wow. Huh. The welfare worker was a lovely, lovely woman. 
And who's now in therapy two, for the rest of well, you life. You know what? There were actually two welfare workers. There was one. This, this is actually very strange. I just thought of this. There was one welfare worker who was lovely. And then she, I think she went on vacation. And then another welfare worker came in for a week or two. And we, I mean, the movie is R-rated. Uh, there are many things that are happening in the movie that we were kind of blanching at. And then the welfare worker came up to us. We made a joke about diabetes. Okay. And apparently her aunt suffered from diabetes. And she was like, I think that diabetes joke went too far. And it's like, there's anal beads, yeah, there's, there's a sex doll, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a kid has a pubic hair in his mouth, and kids are, like, running to the sides of trucks, and they're, they're like, crossing the highway, and it was like, you can't make fun of diabetes. That That is just a bridge too far. That's a bridge too far. So, wait, how, what ended up happening with the, the with dildo the diabetes, discussion? We had to cut the diabetes hole. <laughs> that was a huge reshoot. It was a fucking disaster. A budget yeah. nightmare. <sighs> So uh, no dildo in the mouth, but the thing. so we, yeah we used a ball gag. It was it was an amazing scene that uh, I, I was laughing for a good thirty seconds. It was so brilliant. Um, uh, so okay, so so the larger theme of the movie is not sex toys; it's friendship. It is. It's moving on. It's it's. So, do you want to talk a little bit about how you got to that? I think like in the script development, and Seth and Evan were really helpful with this. It's like Seth and Evan, Seth uh, Rogan. And Evan Goldberg. Have you who, heard of them? Yeah, they're the producers. They're I'm the just, producers. The people that are, that, that are listening don't know them personally. So uh, so they were the producers. I think, I, think they, I think it's nice in a podcast where you have a shorthand <laughs> and it's like, oh, you say Seth and Evan and then the audience kind of comes to so it. so big time after the premiere, you know? Yeah. So I was, you know, I was on the phone with Donald the other day exactly. and uh, <laughs> uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Uh, no, we, you know, we talked a lot about what, how, how to kind of create an emotional center to a movie. And if you look at Superbad... You know, super bad. The end of the movie is kind of this bittersweet thing where you know they're they're friends, but they're they're moving on from each other, and you see them you see them moving on. And we were talking about what is the sixth grade version of that, and I think that it's a time as we're as we're developing it. The thing that we talked a lot about is like at sixth grade is kind of the beginning of you you're finding your identity a little bit. It's like. You're not necessarily going to be friends with the kids in the neighborhood. You're not necessarily going to just be friends with the kids because your parents are friends with their parents. You realize, like, I was into karate, which is why I lost my virginity at 22. And, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, everyone had their own – everyone kind of has their thing. So, like, I became friends with the other karate kids. And then the other kid plays basketball and loses yeah. his virginity earlier. And, like, so you you, you just kind of, you kind of find your, your way. And I think at the end of the movie, the kids are all kind of finding their – they're new tribes, and I think they also I, – I, I think that the end of the movie – I think different people are taking different things from it. Like, I think I think that they might not be friends anymore, are, are you, but they they haven't realized that yet. Are you um, – when you're, you're sitting there at the premiere and you're watching the movie and everyone – it's laughing after laughing after – it's just like one after the other after the other – and there's like a joke that doesn't land. Are you, is that all you're focused on? Or that's you, all I hear. That's it. All I hear is silence. Really? There was no silence. Last there was. Night. There was not a lot of silence. <laughs> you last couldn't night. hear it. The, I, I had a very. I have a very different relationship to like the premiere. I was like, I, I was like overwhelmed from six p.m. until midnight. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And I like didn't. I like didn't have a bad time. I felt like I was. I was watching someone else's movie. And I was speaking, and I, I, I had no relationship to anything. And then around midnight, I went out for drinks and food, and I was with my friends, and I liked it. I'm so happy to hear that. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, the other theme that I just want I you to touch on. I was trying to get real. Quickly. You got real. Well, you I like think, it? you know, what's real is, is, real. Is, is, so, is so it's so funny is, like, people think that, like, 
there's all these like there's all these people waiting for autographs outside the movie and like you know and and everything and people think that they read the Daily Mail and they think like these like people who are who these directors and writers and actors like they must have this amazing life and I texted you and I was like hey you're free to do this podcast on Thursday and you texted me back a screenshot of an empty calendar and you were like <laughs> what time is best. <laughs> So, it's not your typical diet. Delusion, say. delusion of grandeur. Yeah, I, just, I do stuff. Yeah, I also, by the way, so many people wanted my autograph mm. at the end of the night, which was really strange and incredibly what do you disappointing do with for an those. Autograph. Well, no, I think I, the Eisenberg I autograph spoke, on eBay probably is like worth probably no, like forty I spoke cents. To, I spoke to some of the kids outside. Actually, uh, what they do is they collect the autographs of all the people on the movie poster and they sell them on eBay. And like, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. what, what do you get for a Lee Eisenberg autograph? I don't think much, but I think if it's next to a Seth Rogen autograph and mm. then some of the actors. Uh, that were there in the movie or you know involved I think maybe a couple couple of cents mm-hmm. you know yeah maybe a dollar big day know. for those kids outside yeah one of the things that I thought resonated and was so fresh about the movie is the topic of consent comes up a lot which is something that oh, would yeah. never have come up in a, yeah. in a super bad era movie even right. though it wasn't that long ago and so so the way it comes up is when they're talking about learning to kiss or trying to kiss a girl, the boys remind each other that you can't just kiss a girl, that you have to ask for consent. And it's a very funny joke in the movie, but it speaks to the wokeness of kids in a way that when we were kids, obviously this was not something that would ever come up. How well, did, how is, how is that something that you decided to include? And I, I mean, a lot of it was, I mean, a lot of those 80s comedies, I mean, there was a whole thing on John Hughes movies. They A lot of them really don't age very well. And, in uh, what way? They're, I mean, they're homophobic. Mm. They're uh, rapey, I think is the word. Yeah. Um, no, there's like a lot of unconscious girls and guys taking pictures of their panties and, you know, making out with them and stuff like that. I mean, it's not, well, it was, it's not it a was, great look. No, it's reminiscent of the time where, where people got away with a lot more stuff than they do today. Yeah. And so what we, I mean, what we talked about a lot is what were the assemblies like when we were in sixth grade and seventh grade and middle school? And what are those like now? And I think that the assemblies now are all about consent and it's about open opening lines of communication and they're growing up in the Me Too era. And so I think that that I think those are things that are really important to talk about. But I also think from a comedy perspective, you know, it's like um, we always talk about different comedy engines and the engine for the movie. A lot of it is like the jokes come from like the innocence and the earnestness, like earnestness is not a thing that you see as a comedy engine in a lot of movies. And so like these kids talking about consent and like, you know, at some point in the movie, a guy says like, you know, tell that girl she can suck my dick. And he's like, she can't suck your dick unless you ask for consent. <laughs> and it's like, they're just donut, like they're just hearing things. And I think at that age, you don't quite, I mean, none of them have kissed. None of them, they generally know what a blowjob is. But at one point in the movie, they're talking about like a guy blowing a girl. So they don't really know what a blowjob is, but they know that when, you do something like a blowjob, you need to ask for consent. And that, and you, we actually had in the big kissing scene, uh, you know, one of the characters asks a girl if he can kiss her. And we did have a version where she said, I consent. <laughs> and then they kissed. But we felt like we felt like the joke there was stepping on hopefully the emotion of it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 really fascinating to kind of look at how even just a comedy like this is so is incorporates all the things going on in today's society and everything so for sure you're listening to inside the hive with nick bilton 
So I, you, you're working on an, another project that's coming out soon. Um, it's for Apple, and it's called, I'm not going to screw up the title, so you better tell me. <laughs> it's called Little America. <laughs> Little America. I was going to go with Big America. But um, uh, so in, t- tell, tell us a little bit about it, and then I have some questions about it. Sure. Uh, so Little America is a show that I created with Kumail Nanjiani. Who was on the show. Who was on the show. A few weeks ago. Great you interview. go back and listen. It's a yeah. fantastic conversation and, about life uh, and death and... And his wife, uh, Emily V. Gordon. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, it's an immigrant anthology series. So every episode is about, they're all based on true stories. Epic Magazine, our friend Josh Bierman, um, his company, um, we just dispatched them out into the the world. And we just collected all these stories that um, are... Just human. It's their, they're, it's their, they're human stories about about people who are yeah, immigrants who happen, who, to be, who happen to be immigrants, and and that informs it. But you know, there's a silent episode, a silent retreat, and there's an episode about a guy who's trying to build a house for his family, and there's a story about a a, a Nigerian grad student in Oklahoma in the '80s who's uh, who's not fitting in and starts dressing like a cowboy. And every every episode every episode has a different feel to it. So the thing that's so fascinating about it is that. It is is it it's talking about immigrants in a very human way in response to uh, half of America that are talking about them in a very inhuman way. Yeah, um, unhuman. What is it? Is inhuman. it non-human, non-human, non-human way? Um, was part of your impetus to get involved in this project because of that, or there are a few things. I mean, I think from I think a lot and. You know, when I think about Good Boys and I think about Little America, the things that I'm drawn to are taking stories or um, and kind of putting a spin on it. So I think that Good Boys is familiar because it, there's a nostalgic factor and it feels like Stranger Things and it feels like it and it feels uh, like Stand By Me. But you've never seen the R-rated version, the comedy version of it. So it's like you've seen a million movies about high school kids trying to lose their virginity You've never seen the sixth grade version of it where kids are trying to get to the kissing party. So that was exciting to us. And I think Little America, you know, with Master of None and Atlanta and Better Things and Smilf and all these shows that are kind of these half hours that really mix drama and comedy and have a ton of heart and emotion in a way that uh, the shows that I love, like Seinfeld, you know, didn't. Like, I think, the co- I think that comedies or half hours have evolved in a different way. And I was thinking... I haven't seen sh- I haven't seen a sh- I haven't seen a show that's really delved into it, having immigrants at, at, at front facing, and so you know so often it's like okay there's an Indian character and he works at the convenience store and they have an exchange or whatever but like they're eighth on the call sheet and it was like well what if that character was number one on the call sheet and I think Master of Alan Yang is another producer on the show um, and he you know he co created Master of None and. They did an episode, and we sold the show before this, but, like, they did an episode that kind of, it followed the taxi driver, and it followed the the woman who was deaf with her boyfriend, and was just taking people that you don't normally see and putting them in situations where 10 years ago it would just be two white people going through it, and I think that it, it changes it. I think it's exciting. Do you think that everyone has a story that could become, a, like, something that people could read or watch or something like that, like every single person does, or that it's only a certain kind of person that has a story? I think absolutely everyone has a story. There's another thing that I'm trying to develop um, about obituaries. Mm. And basically, it's like, as we, as we were talking about, it was like, oh, well, you could start with, you know, you do famous people that have, you know, uh, have died. But I actually think it's closer to S-Town. And I think that 
I think if you take if you if you delve into anyone's life, like everyone has a rich history, and everyone you don't have to be you don't have to be famous, or you don't have to have, you know created anything to have a, to, to touch people's lives. So it's like you had a softball league, and you were the you know the head of the softball league, or you had a fantasy baseball thing, and you were you know what I mean. You were the commissioner, or you. I don't know, you were a florist and you had customers come in every week and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think everyone has a story and just, sometimes you have to pull the story out. Mm. But I, I mean, I love talking. I mean, I talk to every single Uber driver and one, actually, I think we're going to get a season two. So if Apple, Tim Cook, if you're listening, I assume he listens. He listens every Yeah, so we're going to get a, pick, yeah. a pickup for season two of the show. But one of the stories for season two uh, was an Uber driver that I met who was from Croatia. Hmm. And, uh, and I just started talking to him and I said, uh, I said, hey, I have, I mean, this sounds weird, but I have a show <laughs> and I'd love to get your story. And I got his number. I completely forgot about it. And then the researchers for the show uh, told me like a few weeks ago that they've like, they've interviewed him multiple times. It's not going to be an episode. He's going to make like the biggest Uber tip in the history of Uber That's from awesome. driving me. Yeah. What's interesting about the show, and it's honestly, I think it's one of the best shows I can remember seeing for a, a lot of different reasons, but. It's a show that stands on its own as just fantastic television. It's well acted. It's shot beautifully. The stories, I've cried at every single episode I've seen of it. But it also fits into the cultural conversation and the political conversation on top of being so good in a way that I can't remember a show ever really feeling like. Mm -hmm. What do. do you think the value is of having a show on the air that is standalone good, but also fits into a greater good? Of this conversation, I have, well, a, I have a second part to that question, which is: uh, Don't roll, roll your eyes. She's rolling her eyes at me, <laughs> like trying to man. <laughs> no, man no, no, no. I'm just. No, I'm not. I, I, it's and it's a. But you, you're looking at it from a very positive perspective, and I'm curious if you also think about people who may look totally. at it from a negative perspective because they are good addition. pro-Trump, anti-immigrant. We always talked about the show. It's political because it exists, but the show. We didn't set out to make a political show, but. We want it to be part of the conversation and should be part of the conversation because I think that people, I think that people look at uh, immigrants in a different light, and I think the way that they're represented in the media and the way that Trump talks about them, and it feels like a mass of people are invading our country, and it doesn't feel personal. And I think that what the stories have, they're universal, and I think that everyone, and it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or where you're from or how you were brought up, like. Everyone's concerned about, everyone wants a raise at work. Everyone wants to fall in love. Everyone loses a, a parent or a sibling or whatever. And I think that that is why, I think what makes the show unique is you're seeing that and you're all of a sudden completely invested in someone that doesn't look anything like you. And I think that that's something that's important for people to be aware of. I think there will be an incredible backlash uh, from a certain sect. But that's, I mean, I, 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 my hope is that the show will be more, certainly be received more positively than negatively. How important was it for you to cast people, directors, uh, actors, people who worked in the show who were from the areas where the immigrants were from? Was that a consideration? We had zero interest. No, no. Um, <laughs> um, no, it was, it was incredibly important. So we, I mean, it was the craziest casting show ever because... I mean, we were casting Didn't in L.A. Get, weren't your writers also immigrants, too? Yeah, I mean, the, the show, I think 90%, I can't, I did the math at one point, it was 90% or 88% of the writers, actors, and directors were either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Huh. Um, 
And so as much as possible, we had the Mexican, Mexican director direct the Mexican episode, uh, the, you know, Ugandan, the Ugandan writer writing the Ugandan episode. And we really wanted to give it as much authenticity as possible. And the casting was the same way. So we were, for the Ugandan episode, we were casting out of Uganda and we had to get, um, we had to get these visas and the village where uh, the casting agency was lost power. So then we couldn't, we couldn't get their uploaded videos. Um, we ended up shooting the, there's an episode that, that's actually set in Syria and Jordan and ends in Boise. And uh, we, we ended up shooting in Montreal. And one of the reasons we shot in Montreal was because of the travel ban. And one of the actors, I believe it was Libyan, and he wouldn't have been able to act in the wow. show had crazy? we. Crazy. So it's a crazy thing. It's a show about immigrants and a, hopefully a positive spin on it. And then we were dealing, we ended up shooting a show called Little America in Montreal. Because wow. of the travel ban in yeah. the U.S. Yes. All right. So I have a couple of, a couple of last questions and then I'll let you, let you escape. Uh, so you've been in this world for, for a very, very, very long time in Hollywood and, and so on. Um, you sold the show to Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, what's it, it is, is the way that you're making things, um, like if, if you were to write the office today from scratch, if it was, you go out to go out and pitch it, it, would it be different based on kind of selling it to one of these streamers? I mean, it's what I find so fascinating is like Apple is a company that's very careful about not getting involved in, in things that, you know, could affect its business, but they're taking on this project because yeah. Tim Cook obviously cares about this stuff and, and, uh, is do you think that we're, we're kind of in the midst of the streaming wars? There's, there's all this stuff out there, you know, that you probably would never have gotten made a million years ago, and probably won't get made, you know, a few years from now. How do you think the industry is changing, and how is it kind of changing the way the content is created and the type of content that's created? Well, I mean, there are mil- I mean, this is just the beginning of the streaming wars, right? I mean, Comcast is coming in, HBO Max, Disney Plus hasn't launched yet, Apple. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting 18 others, yeah. Quibi. right? What? Quibi. Quibi. Those Quibisodes are, are going to drop Is soon. Is that what they call them, Quibisodes? I just made that up. That's great. But I think that's what yeah. they should call them. Jeffrey Katzenberg, if you're listening. Yeah. He's, a, he's another big listener. Um, no, I, you know, so I think that there, there's a lot of opportunity for creators. Uh, there's a lot of space for it. I mean... Does the content change at all as a result of all these different spaces to go, or is it? I don't it... think so. I mean, I, I think that content. I, I think that it's evolving. I think that again, I don't know that Little America would have existed fifteen years ago. I feel yeah. confident that it would not have. I don't know that Master of None would have. You know, I like. I think that people look. I mean, Veep is one of my favorite comedies of all time, and certainly the last few years. And I think that show's perfect. That show has zero heart. And it's just a joke. I mean, it's just a joke soup. Every single line is is a is a one liner. I think that show's perfect. But I do think so. I think there I think there exists a place for stuff like that. Uh, the attempt at Good Boys is that every line is a joke. Um, but I also think that people are really excited and want things that are sometimes a little bit more difficult or um, you know ambiguous and emotional, even even from their half hours. And so I think that that. I think that comedy writers are evolving also, and I think that you, I think Little America, if Little America is not necessarily the the natural successor to Good Boys necessarily. Yeah, no, you know? <clears throat> no, the two drastically different things. All right, so you've worked you've worked in this industry for a long time. You do you have any like juicy stories, like any funny, amazing stories that you always think about? <laughs> do you have one that you can give us, like a uh, good anecdote? 
I <laughs> I was I was at a, a club, which is not something that happens very often. I at was at the club. I was at the club, yeah. At the club. Uh with Gene. This was two thousand eight, two thousand seven maybe. Mm-hmm. I was and, a senior in high school. I just want to put that up. <laughs> that was just that was not necessary as a as a keep addition. going, keep going. Come on, you got and, me hooked and, now. Okay. And uh we go to the club, we bump into our friend Michael Kivas, who you know. Mm-hmm. I could have said Kivas, but I'll say Michael Kivas. Mm-hmm. And he was there with some other people. And I said, "Oh, what are you what are you doing?" And he said, "Oh, we're going to leave soon. Uh, Quincy Jones is having uh, an after party." And I had never been to an after party and was very excited about this. I did not know Quincy Jones personally, and I said, "I said, Michael, can you can you bring us?" And he said, "Well, I I don't feel comfortable. I don't really know him." So Gene and I I went up to Quincy Jones and I introduced myself and I said that I work with Rashida, his daughter, and I said I heard you're having an after party and I was wondering if I could go. And which is not which is a very lame thing to do <laughs> on so many levels, and he agreed, and so uh, we got his we got his address. We drive up to this amazing house at the top of uh, Bel Air, and the we don't we, you know it's one in the morning or something, and we don't know what to do if we like ring the doorbell or whatever. All of a sudden the gates open, and we're just like we think this is amazing. We walk in. And it was really a record scratch moment. There were six people there. I thought we were walking into a 100-person party. There were six people there. Oh, my God. It was Kivas, uh, Steve Bing, Mm -hmm. Joe Francis, the creator of Girls Gone Wild, who is uh, Quincy Jones' next-door neighbor, Quincy Jones, and then, like, three or four younger folks. And everyone just – everyone turned to the door. (laughs) And it was just so brutal. And slowly people started to leave – and for whatever reason, just because we didn't know what we were doing, it ended the the night ended with me and Gene and Quincy Jones, and it's like three in the morning, and we real and we we didn't realize like everyone had left. I mean, everyone. There were six of them, and uh, and we're like, Mr. Jones, thank you so much. And he said, Oh, I want to show you something, and, and we're and like, we thought like he wanted to go, and he's also an older guy. He takes us into his screening room, the the shades the shades. Uh, are drawn, a screen comes down, and he shows us the making of his house uh, <laughs> to his music. So it started with Miles Davis. I mean, he is, you know, this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. collection is, I mean, his his work is amazing. So it started with Miles Davis, and I think it ended with, like, Prince. And for 18 minutes, in that kind of, like, lightning fast, you know, because it, it took a while for his house to be built. It was quite <laughs> like a... time lapse? The time lapse, thank you. Um, we watched the time lapse for 18 minutes to his music, and then we thanked him, and then he gave us a Beverly Hills circular that had an article about Quincy Jones in it, and uh, and that was the last time. That so was you the, just thought you were like massive Quincy Jones. Yeah, that fans. was the, and that was the end of our friendship. That was that was it. You never saw him again. That's it. Yeah, uh, I don't know if that's a good story, but that's it's a it's yeah. a good story. It's a good it's a good uh, it's a good entry story into uh, Hollywood. And uh, all right, so we're gonna end we're gonna end on a, a last little note. We got we have the. Um, Democratic, uh, uh, the next debate's coming up in a, mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. Uh, you guys have any thoughts on uh, what's going to happen? I'm very excited for it to be a smaller pool. How, bi- how many people is it going to be now? Well, it depends. 43, on I think. <laughs> Which They're narrowing it down to 43. <laughs> it will feel much smaller. I think it'll probably end up being around 10, mm-hmm. which feels like a breeze. Lee, who do you think will be the nominee? I mean, is it crazy to say Marianne? Williamson? Yeah. No, that feels right. 
she's actually going to be our guest on the show next week. Is no, that right? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Yeah. Can we Wait, can we come can back? Can we come back? Do you have <laughs> yeah, back? we can. You will have, have, you have. Do you have the technology for three different bikes for guests? So many questions. Good because I need questions to ask her. Oh yet. well. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, no one knows who the nominee is. I'm not sure. Okay, Marion Williams, Kamala. It's not going to be Joe Biden. Joe well. Joe is not. Ma- I, I. It's just not. He's too many gaffes. Too old. Fifty years in politics. Here's my thing. Here's what I think. I think. It, I think there's a chance it could be Warren. You and I had this conversation a couple weeks ago. I know. Well, it's an ever-changing conversation. I'm saying the conversation is going to be different now that we're having it three oh. weeks later, or however many <laughs> weeks later. I do think that Warren is... I feel Warren like Emily's is a, being a little bit mean to me. Do you feel that, that way, too? No, I'm I, you, guys, you, guys are like, you guys are like brother and sister. I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm we kidding. had this go, conversation, go. I think it's changed, mm-hmm. in that I think uh, Biden will do much better in a general election than he will in a primary election because he doesn't want to have those substantive conversations that he has to have in the primary debates. I think he could kill it on stage with Trump, but I don't, I think that that is so far away and I don't think he's going to survive the primaries. I just don't, I don't think he has it. I think that there's something that's a little bit off about him. He's the, whatever the opposite of woke is, I guess it's like asleep. He is. Yes. And it is the complete opposite of woke. Uh, Warren is an interesting if she goes after that economic populist message that Trump was able to tap into, then there's a real thing there. She could not only win over the left side of the Democratic Party, but she could possibly win over Trump voters. And that's a real thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. The The, the question is, is I, so in my run up to my interview with Marin Williams um, next week. Uh, Did you I, see that interview she gave with Interview Magazine? What, no, what, which it one? It was... Wacky. Really? Yeah. I'll, I will she read says it. that she was unaware of the fact that Air Force One didn't have lie flat beds, and that's going to be a thing she changes if she's elected president. <laughs> thank you. I, I was actually <laughs> thank fucking thank God. God. I've been yeah. Make America great again. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it doesn't that's have lie flat beds. Are you serious? How are you? How, are you sure? They've got to. They've got to lay down when they. So the press part of it is. Is oh normal. yeah! So the press part of it is. Vile. I mean, there are not normal seats like there are in a plane. There is like a situation room, and there are like yes. there's a dining room. So it's not. It, it does not look like the JetBlue Mint. Oh, she was talking about for the for the press. I don't know what she was talking about. To be honest, I thought the situation room table turned into a bed. That's life. I thought they put a mattress That's on it. That's life. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, That's like one of Trump lies down in the, the middle of the thing, and then every, the all the generals airlines, are talking you know, about it. The yeah. situation turns into one of those. And then like, they put sushi boxers. on him, yeah, exactly. and they eat it. <laughs> um, no, they, they don't have um, – the journalists uh, do not no, – it's not very no comfortable. No, no Wi-Fi. The seats don't go back very far. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. Considering oh, you can't watch like Big Bang Theory season six on – yeah, Air um, Force One. You no, to, you just have to consider, and it's all, all locked of your, off. You're like completely all locked of in your there. Life choices mm. yeah. that, you've, that have taken you to that moment mm-hmm. as you're flying 18 hours back from Japan with no internet or television or anywhere outlets, to lay down. No lie flat. No pillows. All of that changed. Is there alcohol? No, not for the journalists. I don't think. I don't know. Mm. Maybe. I, I'll ask. I'll ask. I'll find out for it's the next. Fun. This time is why I'm show. not a journalist. So. Um, uh, Unsure about the alcohol on Air Force One. <laughs> the, the, but the, okay, so, so the one thing that I was reading, which I actually do agree with her on quite a lot, is that she said, you know, and and Buttigieg has said this too, that we we live in a country where uh, the Democrats have really screwed things up by 
by kind of pushing religion completely out of the conversation. You know, nine out of ten Americans do identify with some sort of religion or belief in God or something, and we just don't talk about it. And so I think that the question is, is like when you look at who those 2020 contenders are, look, I think most people, Trump included, McConnell, all these people, they're not religious people. Like they're not, you know, God-fearing, like Bible-reading Americans. Um, but a lot of their voters are. And I, I guess the question is, is if someone like Warren or Kamala or, I mean, Buttigieg, I think, is one of the people that could do it, could could tap into that. The first time I noticed Buttigieg was him talking, giving an answer, I think, on Morning Joe about his faith. And mm. I, it was way before he was what he is now or anything close to it. He was definitely not even registering on any kind of poll when he said this and I was like holy shit this guy's going to be a thing because I had never conceptually thought about it this way and if I haven't thought about it then uh, no one's thinking about it but but he said something like the right has co-opted faith and that makes no sense because if you think of all the central tenets of religion giving to the poor valuing education uh, social welfare things those are democratic issues those are the uh, democratic principles those are not republican principles and so why has the right been able yeah. to co-opt yeah. religion let's let's let there be a religious left too no. and i thought that that was such an interesting way of thinking about things in a way that i'd never conceptualized it and and he's right but it's interesting cuz it's coming from a a guy who is openly gay and so yeah. that's an interesting little tension in the religious community and so i think how that will continue to play out is something that we should all keep an eye on. I think it's a fascinating little nugget in a world that's already pretty fascinating. All right. And on that note, Lee, do you want to do the closing remarks? Sure. Here's the, here's the piece oh. of paper. Would you like to join in? You guys can do it together. Wow. So you start off so with I, a, I say thanks to my guest. I'll, I'll do that part. Thanks to my guest today, Lee Eisenberg and Emily Jane Fox. Lee, take it away. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Nick Bilton. You can find these on all... <laughs> I couldn't read Apple. Sorry. <laughs> you can find these on Apple Podcasts. Apple uh, Podcasts. Pa- uh, you can find these on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> those are hard words together. You can find these on Apple Podcasts. Radio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Hold on a second. What do they do when they leave a review, Emily? They have to say something fucking nice. Do not take your time to leave a one-star review to say you don't like the fact that, like, I breathed into the microphone or that Lee made a bad dildo joke. Leave a nice review or do not leave a review at all. That's all I'm going to say about that. I swear that. to fucking God if I anyone has a bad review God. that has to do with me. He's putting a dildo in your mouth. <laughs> Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks to, of course, my sponsors, Stamps.com, Honey, and Third Love. Please support them the way you support this podcast. Nick, we'll see you next week. see you next week with the one, the only, Marianne Williams. Go see good boys. America has a problem. One that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this 
is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.